What you gonna do? One light meat and dark meat, coffee and cream, white lightning and black thunder, run wild on you. I'll tell you. Dodge, duck, skate, suplex, and spirit fingers. Welcome to Channel 8 and a Half. Hello and welcome back to Channel 8 and a Half, a podcast about film, television, and pop culture. My name is Andrew Hanna. I am Joe Galino. This week's episode is an appropriate follow-up to last week's episode. Joe, what are we talking about? In honor of the Queen's Gambit, which we talked about last week, go listen to that. It was a very good discussion for a very good show. We thought, wouldn't it be fitting to talk about unorthodox sports movies? Queen's Gambit obviously is about chess, not something particularly that you would find cinematic, mm-hmm. but boy, does it make it interesting. Yeah. And the things we're talking about this week tend to fall outside of your normal football, your baseball movies, your basketball movies. Everybody's seen those. We'll talk a little bit about some of those normal sports, but the ones that do it in a little bit abnormal way. Yeah. So essentially it's not just obscure sports or scarcely depicted sports in film and television, but also some of the main four or five, however, viewed through a different lens or unconventional in structure and theme. Quite literally. And also just some sports that are off the beaten path. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You're very, very strange sports, which what was the first thing that you thought of when we talked about doing unorthodox sports movies? I thought of two films when we settled on this theme, but the natural first place my mind went was comedy, of course, because those are the ones that tend to depict the more obscure sports. And it was Balls of Fury, the ping pong movie. And it's more of a satire, really, of secret agent movies. It's not even necessarily a sports movie. However, it is set against the backdrop of a very unorthodox sport, which is ping pong. (laughs) So it does hit some of the sports movie beats and themes. They tend to be the underdog Mm -hmm. breaking convention, you know, the player or the coach, the team is trying to break a specific convention of the sport, fighting elitism, a troubled family life, be it parents who are disapproving or an estranged wife or child. Overcoming adversity. Small town girl makes it big. Exactly. And then the next movie that popped in my head that I personally love this movie was The Greatest Game Ever Played, which was a golf movie. Mm -hmm. And actually, Stephen Delane is in that movie. Stannis Baratheon. I was like, wait, I don't remember this. And obviously it was before I even knew who Stephen Delane was, but watching it back was very interesting. And then I found out Bill Paxton directed it out of all people. Bill Paxton directed The Greatest Game Ever Played? That I did not know. What? I've been watching this movie since I was in high school because it came out in what? 2004, I think? 2005. Or 2005. And I was preparing for the episode. I was like, wait, who directed this? And what have they done? And then I looked and I was like, Bill Paxton, what? (laughs) The guy from Twister? Bill Paxton did direct this. I mean, it's funny. If you are ever scrolling past the Golf Channel. Yeah. Like you do. There is a 75% chance that the greatest game ever played will be playing on the golf channel because it's all they play. Oh, yeah. It's on a constant loop. I wasn't sure if people had even watched this movie because not a lot of people talked about it. And golf isn't necessarily a sport that is portrayed much on screen, likely because of its slow paced nature. I mean, there are a fair amount of golf movies, but relative to basketball, football, soccer, the big four, as well as baseball, it's not nearly as much. I mean, you had The Legend of Bagger Vance, which mm-hmm. I hadn't seen, but I've been wanting to see for a while. Have you seen that movie? Yes, because that is the other one quarter of the programming on the Golf Channel. <laughs> it's those two movies. It's just those two movies over and over again. And occasionally they cut to some golf, too. It's 90% greatest game ever played, 10% Bagger Vance, and then like 1% of just regular golf. 
I know those numbers don't add up, but you know, I was told there'd be no math. The greatest game I've ever played, I really liked because it made watching a golf movie very interesting. Characters I really love, like the kid that caddies for Shia, <laughs> my favorite character in that whole movie. And if you haven't seen The Greatest Game I've Ever Played, it's about the elitist world of golf. And Shia is a caddy who gets a chance to compete in the US Open. And by the end of it, it comes down to Shia, who plays Francis We Met, and it's based on a true story. Mm-hmm. And Delaney's character, who plays an English peasant boy whose childhood home was actually demolished to build a golf course. He has a very interesting conflict as well. And then the third other person in the final is Josh Flitter, who plays Eddie Lowry, He's this burly Englishman. And all three of them came from humble beginnings. And I love that the three that are left in the final have been turned away at one time or another or marginalized by sort of the golf elites or golf establishment. And there are some cartoonishly exaggerated characters and moments. However, on a thematic level, it's actually pretty good. Legend of Bagger Vance also goes into that too. Mm -hmm. A lot of golf movies or the serious ones, the ones aren't the heavyweight dramatic uh, Oscar contender that is Who's Your Caddy? play into golf being a very stuffy game for elites rich men play golf that's Mm -hmm. where business deals are made legend of bagger vance greatest game ever played they do the whole like looking down at some guy shia in that movie Mm -hmm. will smith and going well not everybody is a stuffy elitist you know the peasants can rise up and hit a nine iron two well it's interesting because i hadn't consciously realized that it was a common trope until I was really thinking about it. It comes up in a number of sports films, specifically ones reserved for quote-unquote high society. And it was very apparent when I was re-watching The Greatest Game and then another we're going to talk about later, I, Tanya, because despite her excellence, they shut her out as well because she was essentially white trash. Putting that aside, I love the way that they shot The Greatest Game I've Ever Played because it was very interesting. It made watching golf interesting. For instance, there's a moment when Delaney's character is prepping to take his shot. And as his focus narrows, the people around him begin to wash away and in the barriers and in the trees on the course until it's just him and the red flag. And it's a great technique of depicting his deep focus. And then when Shia takes his shots, it's always depicted through a shot of him looking toward the hole, then cutting to a Hitchcock dolly zoom, collapsing the depth of field. So basically the distance between him and the hole And then it turns into a straight dolly forward and you realize it's the POV of the ball going into the hole. So it's as if, like many athletes are told to do, is imagine the ball going in. So the dolly zoom is the imagination part and then melds into the actual action of the ball moving forward and diving into the hole. Not only is the way that they shot it interesting, but that they also assign different cinematography techniques to each player. Now, having just seen that movie all these years, I thought it was a very imaginative way of going about it. But in preparation for the episode, I was just watching a couple scenes from Bagger Vance and saw them use a lot of those same exact techniques. Now, it came before The Greatest Game, but I thought it was interesting to see that golf movies have now, in a way, adopted their own language when translated to the screen. There's only so many things that you can do, though, visually to make a man standing still hitting a ball and then walking slowly Mm-hmm. visually interesting. You got to do everything you can. But it's cool to see that a sport like golf has its own language in a sense. I also love the soundtrack from that movie. I mean, one of my favorite tracks in any soundtrack is from that movie. Really? Yeah, yeah. The track is called The Game is a Foot, and it's during the montage of them playing through the second day of the tournament when it's raining. And it's this energetic driving track that is just perfect for a montage like that. 
I have never given as much thought to the greatest game ever played as you just have. I will be honest with you. I am cognizant of the fact that I likely think about this movie far more than most people. And I think it's because when I first saw it, I was a busser in a luxury restaurant. So the whole peasant boy amongst high society aspects really resonated with me. But it is also a great movie. I mean, the relationship with his father, who is an immigrant who labors physically for long hours, is used to being marginalized and is sort of telling his son the game is for rich people. They are not friends of yours. And it's not that he looks down on the profession as much as he's just worried that his son will have his heart broken. And at what point they're fighting and he says, it says here in the papers that if you win, you get no money. And if they win, they do get paid. They don't even pay you. What kind of work is that? And at the end, when Shia wins, the crowd lifts him and his caddy up, carrying them above the crowd. And all you see is a sea of outstretched hands with cash as they're handing it to the two of them because they know they're not going to get any prize money. And, you know, Shia and the caddy are grabbing the cash. And then Shia sees one hand and he looks down and his face turns to surprise and it cuts his father standing in the crowd looking up at his son with pride, his outstretched hand clenching a dollar. I mean, till today, that scene breaks me. I mean, it had Christine and I sniffling by the end. You and I went very differently when we thought about obscure sports movies. You went with a serious golf movie that made you cry. And I thought about Dodgeball, the movie with a man who dresses up like a pirate. Dodgeball is the obvious unconventional sports film. 100%. It was the obvious, and it kicked off a lot of the sports movies that we got in the mid-2000s. A lot of the un- unconventional Will Ferrell sports movies yeah. came yeah. after that. Balls mm-hmm. of Fury that you mentioned, we wouldn't have gotten Balls of Fury without Dodgeball. Mm-hmm. And and I think it has a lot to do with the 90s being so heavy on sports movies. Like you had Angels in the Outfield. It wasn't Field of Dreams in the 90s? Field of Dreams in 1989. Well, I would call that the 90s. But close enough. <laughs> yeah, it's close enough. But yeah, no. So I almost feel like the 80s and 90s were very heavy on these sort of inspirational sports movies that it became... Disney's Miracle came out in 2004. The most inspirational. Remember the Titans was one and then there's Mighty Ducks. All yeah, like the all those movies that were basically the same exact movie. Very inspirational. The one with Mark Wahlberg where he's a bartender and he goes, he tries yeah. out the Eagles. All of them. They all came out around the same time too. We needed a dodgeball. To lampoon all of that. And that's why Dodgeball, I think, and it's very easy for sports comedies to work because Mm -hmm. the language of sports and sports movies is kind of ingrained into you just from the beginning of your life. Sports movies, very serious and inspirational sports movies Mm -hmm. have been being made since basically cinema was around. The Pride of the Yankees is a very famous baseball movie. Mm -hmm. And it's about the last days of Lou Gehrig. And it follows Lou Gehrig giving a very inspirational speech after he's diagnosed with what would become Lou Gehrig's disease. And it's a very heartwarming moment. Very greatest game ever played-esque. You'd probably cry at the end. (laughs) But everybody knows that. We all know that story. And so something like Dodgeball, which can tell the exact same story. It's an underdog, literally called Dodgeball and Underdog Story. It's all the same beats. Mm Mm-hmm. But lampoons a lot of them. And I feel like that is imperative for a good parody is to pick a genre that has a very distinct language and very distinct set of tropes. The underdog story and the ragtag group of misfits, that type of thing. I mean, the overpowered villain. Yeah. 
And that genre was ripe for satire because it came after just a string of very inspirational. And apparently Dizzy had cornered the market on inspirational sports movies. Oh, yeah. What we've come up with. And it's the same thing with Deadpool after Mm -hmm. two decades of superhero movies. So it, it just made sense that around that time we got Balls of Fury, Blades of Glory, Talladega Nights, Nacho like Libre. all of those, Nacho Libre. Oh, and the Alley Cat Strike Back. <laughs> Alley Cat Strike. Disney yeah. really did like doing, mm-hmm. you know, movies about sports, though. Even Disney Channel original movies. Did you ever see uh, Brink? Brink, obviously. Yep. But then there was also the other inline skating movie, Airborne, which not a lot of people. Have I never seen. saw Airborne. Oh, think. you are missing out on a treat. Johnny Tsunami. Johnny Tsunami was there, uh, and then obviously Johnny Tsunami 2, back in action. What was the one with the girl surfer? Rip Girls. Oh, yeah. Rip Girls <laughs> did exist. What happened to this girl? What happened to most of those Disney Channel original stars? Seriously. Eric Von Detten dropped off a cliff. The guy who played the villain, who knows what happened to him and his punchable rat face? <laughs> oh, it's Camilla Bell. What? Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't know that. Uh-huh. Huh. How about that? Yeah, Eric Von Denton, I mean, he was the face of Disney. Boy, was he. For the longest time. Oh, and he was in Prince's Diaries. I forgot about that. He played the smarmy douchebag. I love Prince's Diaries. You know what Dodgeball does really well, though, that does invert the genre, is that it has a protagonist that doesn't really want anything, is very passive, and is hesitant to change. He's the opposite of every sports movie character. Rudy really wants to be on the Notre Dame football team. Vince Vaughn in Dodgeball just kind of wants to hang out. He doesn't really want to save his gym and has to be convinced to save his gym by other people. What Dodgeball does so well is you hate Ben Stiller as White Goodman so much. Vince Vaughn doesn't care at all about anything. Ben Stiller in that movie cares so much about beating average Joe's gym to a comical degree. And just the, the, the character that he creates as white Goodman with the hair, with the mannerisms, with just the, this intensity that is just blazing hot. The fact that he has a, a painting in his office of him grabbing the bull by the horns, literally. And then they make a joke about it to me. That movie is very, very smart to me. I think. At parodying the genre. Well, yeah, right. I mean, a good parody will seem silly and dumb on the outside, but it's actually very smart. In the same way, I'm going to bring up another sports movie I mentioned a little bit earlier too, Nacho Libre, which Mm -hmm. does not really invert the genre in the same way Dodgeball does. In today's time, this wouldn't go over well, but Jack Plack plays a Mexican priest who moonlights as a wrestler. I forgot. Yeah. um, You know, looking back at it now, that really wouldn't fly. But this was 2004. He's a very earnest character, sticks to to the trope itself. You know, it's not doing anything revolutionary with yeah. the plotting. It's just it, over-exaggerated. It's over-exaggerated, but what Nacho Libre does really, really well, and I think that it, a lot of movies could learn from, is that it takes two characters, Nacho Libre and then his, his sidekick, his ringman, mm-hmm. you know, whatever you want to call them. They have very differing belief systems jack black's character believes in god he's a religious man and his partner does not you know there's even parts where jack black's character goes like you know pray for me and he goes i don't believe in praying but they still work really well together and they're still really good friends and it doesn't become any sort of contentious thing between them 
And it's still a, just a really, really nice, sweet friendship. Everything about Nacho Libre is very sweet. Yeah, it's it's endearing and it's it is. charming. Yeah, it's so charming. Underrated. More people need to see Nacho Libre because not enough people talk about it. It's very good. It has a rotten score on Rotten Tomatoes, and I think that's nonsense. Does it really? I feel like everyone in high school loved that movie. Did they? Not where yeah, I went to like high school. Napoleon Dynamite and Nacho Libre were like people's favorites. Because the guy who directed Napoleon Dynamite directed Nacho Libre. He made these kind of like cult classic. It was sort of the beginning of Mumblecore, I guess. They kind of happened at the same time. Comedy Mumblecore was there first. Before Mumblecore became a thing. Napoleon Dynamite, I think, definitely did. Yeah, maybe more so than Nacho Libre, the, but I think, yeah. The quirky, and I'm using air quotes, protagonist. But a lot of the framing things that he does in Napoleon Dynamite also come back in Nacho Libre. It, it's framed and directed visually really, really well for a movie starring Jack Black as a Mexican wrestler. It is. Which is interesting, right? When a satire is actually gorgeously shot. Like, mm -hmm. I love that. <laughs> you know, a lot of the characters in it don't look like your typical movie stars other than the love interest. She is, you know, fittingly gorgeous. But a lot of the characters look very lived in, feel very real. You know, you can see the lines on their faces. Speaking of Mumblecore and someone who lived in that space during its inception, another one that came to mind was Whip It with Ellen Page. What an underseen movie i remember that movie did not make a lot of money and people don't talk about that movie i resisted it however by the end of it it actually won me over and i was surprised at myself it wins you over in spite of itself i think it's so earnest it's so incredibly earnest but i think by the end you kind of get over that because again it doesn't do anything new with the genre it's a very typical rote sports movie template that they do just set in the world of roller derby. Well, and it makes sense for her directorial debut. Drew Barrymore wasn't going to try to revolutionize the genre. And I think it makes sense that the foundation was consistent with other sports films, but that the sport and the surrounding characters are where it differed. At first, it felt like the usual alt girl breaking out of her shell and fighting against the small town girly girl box. Mm -hmm. But the family dynamic is where I think it found its footing, which is interesting because that's usually where something like this could lose its charm. I, I think it embodied its themes in the sense that all the characters, including the team of girls, could have been one note from the outside perspective, over-exaggerated characters, basically. But they were all fairly balanced and i think marcia gay harden could have become her character in the mist but she was one of my favorite parts and she wasn't too much of sort of the overt pageant mom and she didn't completely buy in by the end of it so mm -hmm. she played it right and i enjoyed her internal conflict as well being from that world i also love the father's pride by the end hammering his sign into the lawn and looking at his neighbor like yeah me too my kids sport too <laughs> like and then down to the sister, she starts to embrace her older sister's new obsession and style. They didn't decide to go with the typical kind of bratty little sister that is a pride of her parents. It's a sweet moment when she's all goffed up and then wearing a helmet by the end of it because she wants to be like her big sister. I mean, I love those moments. and I, I thought it was it was a charming film. I wanted more roller derby. I was the opposite of you. I wanted more of the beating and the roller derbiness of it. I don't want your mother-daughter heartfelt moments. Give me women elbowing each other in the face. It, I mean, it really didn't lean in on the sport. Really, no. I thought it was going to be completely about the sport, but it really wasn't. I mean, they did have the explanation that was very loose. It was a very kind of overt, this is what we're going to do to explain it, and then we're going to move on. They didn't really hit it hard. 
in the explanation of roller derby. And I still kind of don't know how roller derby is played other than, you know, elbow some people in the face and then there's some pileups and then you fly past some people to score. They didn't do that. And that's, I think maybe a reason why it hasn't been seen enough. I don't know. It doesn't even do the thing in the color of money at the beginning where Martin Scorsese does the voiceover in the color of money, but they explain nine ball pool and they say, okay, we're going to do two minutes of voiceover with just us telling you how nine ball was played. And then we're going to move on. I feel like they should have done that and whip it just to make it a little bit more easy to understand. Well, they did. I mean, there was a yeah. point where where Ellen Page literally raises her hand at the tryouts and she's like, what are the rules? And then he goes through the whole explanation. They even have kind of a split screen where they explain, oh, you just have to pass people, basically. And I think the reason why it didn't stick and it didn't resonate is because there weren't very many stakes in the beginning didn't care to win. They were just they no. wanted to just have fun and in a sense express themselves. And then there's this kind of almost arbitrary moment where they decide that they want to win. Cuz Juliette Lewis's character was mean to them from the beginning. So I don't like I don't know what changed at any point. There wasn't very much of the sport necessarily until the end. I think it was more about her her emotional journey of yeah, finding something she loves. It's a coming of age story when it comes down to it. It really has nothing to do with the sport. I wanted more great names. <laughs> Juliet Lewis's character name, Iron Maven. Ah, oh, so good. Maggie Mayhem, Kristen Wiig, Bloody Holly, Zobel. Come on. I was going to ask you this question later. I'm going to spoil my own question. I was going to say, what obscure sport do you want to see another movie made from? Yeah, I was actually going to ask you the same thing. Roller Derby is the one for me. Because there haven't been many. This is the only one I can think of. And it's ripe for more of a comedy type of feel. This is more of a drama. I want the dodgeball of I want the yeah. dodgeball of roller derby. I'm almost glad that they didn't because I thought it was going to be that. This seemed like a movie that Rebel Wilson could be in. I would totally watch that. I mean, it would be funny. Like I would, I would totally watch it. Yeah, Aaliyah Shokat should be in more. Honestly, that girl is so effortlessly funny, charming, and natural. She was in a show on TBS called Search Party that I don't know if it did well. Mm-hmm. She was also in a few episodes of Transparent on Amazon. She's been doing stuff. She hasn't been as doing as much as when she was in Arrested Development. That's the thing is like after Arrested Development, she should have blown up. Yeah. Cause she's so funny in Arrested Development too. Oh my God. She's so great. But I love the coach in this. (laughs) His his one wish is just that the girls run the damn plays and he's just so desperate and so over it. So much so that he literally rips a play out of his book and then walks it over to the opposing team's coach and pays him $20 to run it only to prove to the girls that the plays freaking work. It's, It's so funny to me. The biggest sports movie cliche right there, the over-demanding coach. You can't have a sports movie without it. Comedy or drama. What was different about this is that he takes it so seriously and he really wants to be that sports movie coach, but the girls don't give a crap about the sport. And so he's just frustrated the whole time. The whole time. I I thought it was Aaron Eckhart. I I literally could not distinguish him from Aaron Eckhart. (laughs) Really? Yeah, I don't know why. But yeah, I I enjoyed this overall. Underseen. I think more people need to see Whip It. I agree with this pick. I like it. Speaking of all female sport movies, though. Were you going to go to Bring It On? Sort of, because I I grouped Bring It On together with Pitch Perfect, Stick It, Step Up, because they do fall into this subgenre or hybrid genre of competitive music or arts like dancing, singing, gymnastics, any competitive art form, really. They are artist struggle movies that hit sports movie beats. 
And the athlete struggle is in essence, the artist struggle. They're yeah. very similar. Really mm-hmm. pitch perfect. Does it the most earnestly. Oh yeah. It is yeah. just a sports movie with singing. That's all it is. It, it's, it's whip it basically. It's whip it. I mean, it's any sports movie, yeah. you know, bring it on. They do it too. They're judging them based mm-hmm. on a performance, you know, bring it on is very much a sports movie, even though it's cheerleading. Now you can argue is cheerleading a sport. Um, I you can argue that with chess too. Oh, you chess can absolutely argue that. Yeah. I don't think chess is a sport. I don't think pool is a sport. They're games, but they're played mm-hmm. on ESPN and they're in the Olympics. So I guess it's competitive. Yeah. You know, where are we yeah. drawing the line in the sand here? It really doesn't matter. Is chess played in the Olympics? I have no idea if chess is played in the Olympics. They oh, used to have bowling in the Olympics. They had cha- they had pool in the Olympics. Oh, they did. Yeah, I remember that actually. Yes. Mm-hmm. Ping pong. Ping pong is, is going to be. A, yeah, I think ping pong is in the Olympics. But gymnastics as well. I mean, Stick It is basically about the Olympic team. Yeah. And that's an interesting movie too. Like, what is Jeff Bridges doing in Stick It? What a bizarre choice, right? I mean, it, I guess you get tired of playing country singers and sheriffs. You got to go to a sports coach. Have you ever seen a movie called The Bronze? Mm-mm. Came out a few years ago. It has Melissa Roch in it from The Big Bang Theory. She stars as a over-the-hill Pastor Prime gymnast who took third place in the Olympics, hence The Bronze. And she's real depressed about it. You know, she didn't win gold. It's got a terrible rating on Rotten Tomatoes. It's kind of reviled as being terrible. I really liked it. Really? I thought it, I thought it was very funny. I thought it was heart, charming in the end, but it's also taking a character who is very cold. She's she's mean. Like she's unlikable in the beginning. She's a drunk. She just takes advantage of everybody. She's entitled, but you understand that she feels like she's past her prime. She feels like she's washed up. She feels kind of dead inside, like her life didn't amount to anything. And she feels like a loser. She came in third. She won the bronze medal, but she didn't win gold. And her whole story is coaching this very, very peppy gymnast into oh, being God. into being great, you know, into yeah. being an Olympics level gymnast. You see her start to develop a relationship with Thomas Middletich from Silicon Valley. And she opens up and you see she is softer on the inside. Yeah. But I think a lot of people were just turned off so much by the first interaction with her that they didn't give the movie a chance. I thought it was quite funny and charming. Not an incredible movie. Yeah. It's not going to change your life, but I think it's definitely worth a watch. It reminds me very much of I, Tanya. And I think this, again, falls into the hybrid of art-type sports because it is really just dance on, on ice. the ice. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I, Tanya didn't blow me away as much as I thought it might. If anything, it felt like a showcase of Margot Robbie's talent. And I almost feel like she was making a statement by taking this part to basically say, my looks don't carry me because look how great I can be when I'm ugly. She was incredible in the last scene of the movie <sighs> where she's begging to not be banned. She plays Tanya Harding. Uh, it ripped me apart. Obviously, the most famous story from maybe any Olympics, the drama of Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan and their figure skating rivalry. But man, Margot Robbie is so good and almost too good at making Mm -hmm. you like Tanya Harding. Because if you watch interviews of Tanya Harding, difficult person to root for. Yeah. And Margot Robbie 
was a real, real smart choice. We were so young when it all happened, so it was nice to kind of recap and get a, a full story. And then also, I don't, I didn't know anything about her past, and knowing kind of, I mean, she had a terrible life, and it's just so sad. That doesn't excuse what she did or what she might have known or not known, whatever it might be. It, it's funny because right before we started watching it, I, we were talking about kind of the whole situation. I compared it to the OJ trial. And by the end of it, they actually show the country's attention sort of switch to the OJ trial, which is very interesting. Yeah. And, and again, that goes back to what I was saying last week with the 90s in that you have these stories that hold the country's attention. And then we just move on to the next big story, which I think mm -hmm. is more than anything sort of the founding theme of this film, which is the only thing that the proverbial they want more than it. someone to love is someone to hate. Mm -hmm. And what wasn't really said, but prompted me to sort of complete the sentence in my head was that furthermore, they salivate at the opportunity to hate someone that they used to love. You know, think Iverson, Kanye West, Justin Bieber, like really any child star. They <laughs> You just went Alan Iverson, Kanye West, Justin Bieber? What an odd thing for you to say first is Allen Iverson. Well, Iverson does fall into that category, though. He was all the rage in the basketball conversation. Everyone liked Allen Iverson. And then everybody hated him. That's what I'm saying, is that they built him up, as they do with all young stars, until they reach their zenith and then hang on every action, yeah, he... waiting for a sign of what they think is their inevitable downfall. Well, he was also a ball hog and didn't any fight with fought with all his coaches and him and Larry Brown got to do a huge thing. Allen Iverson did a lot of that stuff to himself. Sure, he did it to himself, but they all do it to themselves technically. No one made Kanye West say the crazy things that he said or Justin Bieber act out in the way that he did. It's the isolation that comes with being the center of attention, even in a good way, and then have every action and word scrutinized and misconstrued, trying to paint you as someone whose head has gotten too big or that you've become a diva or that you've lost your talent, whatever it might be, it has an effect on you and sometimes drives you to become the very thing that they want you to be. Mind you, I knew nothing of Allen Iverson, but after seeing the documentary- Such a good documentary. The Allen Iverson documentary is incredible. Yeah, it was a great documentary, but they show the actual events that occurred and, and then how the media portrayed it, misconstrued it, stretched it, and the career repercussions that followed because they didn't want the drama surrounding Iverson, when sometimes the drama wasn't actually drama and it was all conjured up for the sake of entertainment or the completion of this narrative they were painting. So yeah, I would say the three of them do have that in common. They somewhat touch on it as well in, in The Queen's Gambit when she's doing that magazine interview where she's basically testing different angles on Beth to see what sticks, like when she's talking about family struggles or the fact that she's an orphan and things like that. And she's like, does it feel like, you know, the queen is your mother and the mm -hmm. king is your father? Like that kind of thing. It's like they want to build this story and this narrative. And a lot of times the situation even with Alan Iverson, like they might not have been as bad as they really were portrayed as. I think that goes back to breaking convention as well as, and we can go into Moneyball. Is Moneyball the whole time that they're trying their new method out? The media is constantly telling them, or the sports establishment is telling them, this is not going to work. Sports Talk Radio is calling Billy Bean a moron. Exactly. Which I finally saw Moneyball. Yes, I love Moneyball. I love it so much. I know so you've been much. telling me to watch it for so long. Now, kind of falls, we're stretching the parameters of unorthodox sports movie, but it's a baseball movie done in an unconventional way because this is a based on a book hmm. that should never have ever been an interesting sports movie. 
Moneyball is a book about statistics. It is a book about numbers, the most boring thing ever. And you couple that with baseball, a game that is dying because most people think it's too slow and boring is a recipe for disaster. But I think Moneyball is maybe the best baseball movie. Sacrilege to say there are so many great ones. Although my favorite is Major League. I'm not saying it's the best one. I'm saying it's my favorite. And it's a movie that I think should have gotten Brad Pitt, best actor. I agree I think he's incredible in it. But the way that it's shot with the the players and the numbers all kind of feeding together in this sort of montage type way, they're, yeah. they're, they're superimposing baseball statistics on top of baseball playing, yeah. which is so bizarre in that, again, it shouldn't work on paper. But the relationship that Brad Pitt has with Jonah Hill's character, who plays the Paul D. Podesta in it, is, is amazing. What did you think of it? I'm sorry, I can't, I'm talking no, to. No, 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 no. I know you love this movie. <laughs> I, 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 no, I love hearing you talk about it. But <laughs> I, I think Jonah Hill is one of the most complimentary actors to like heavy hitters, if not the best. Who else can you think of that's consistently placed in that sort of sidekick supporting role? that can shine just as bright, if not more sometimes, when he's up against a big star. I mean, he did it in Wolf of Wall Street, something else I, I'm, I'm forgetting right now, but Jonah Hill shines in serious roles like this. Mm-hmm. And, and playing against Brad Pitt, I mean, I loved their moments together. What's funny is that I forgot that Aaron Sorkin wrote this, and the conversation that Brad Pitt has when he approaches Jonah after the Indians negotiation had me thinking, I'm like, this feels like Aaron Sorkin until I looked it up again, I was like, oh, yeah, no, it, it is. It is Aaron Sorkin. <laughs> yeah. It isn't as heavy-handed Aaron Sorkin, which is maybe why it didn't occur no. to me at first. And I think it's because he had a co-writer. Steve Zalian co-wrote it, and he wrote Chindler's List and Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. And he also wrote and directed Searching for Bobby Fischer, which is the best chess movie. Oh, yeah. It all comes full circle from last week. It was also originally going to be directed by Steven Soderbergh. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. He had an interesting take on it. He was going to shoot the movie as fiction, but intersperse it with real talking head interviews of guys who actually played on the Oakland A's at the time. Oh, that's interesting. It's an interesting take, right? I don't know if I would have liked it more because Soderbergh makes very cold movies and the money ball we have now has a lot of warmth and depth to it, especially in Brad Pitt's performance. The two of them are two of maybe the best screenwriters around right now. And having them work on a movie, again, about baseball statistics is so odd, but that makes it great. And the characters and the dialogue and just all of it. Well, and Aaron Sorkin is obsessed with sports, so it makes sense that he wrote this. He made a show called Sports Night. He could find the story in a book about statistics. And I think that they did a good job of going the science movie route of explaining the methodology in Mm -hmm. loose terms, despite the obvious complexities. So much so that even someone like me who does not watch baseball understood it and could still enjoy it albeit i didn't completely understand everything it still made sense that it was basically just averaging out the players so that they're not either really good and then you have some really bad ones and then also kind of taking the the more easy route just walking players just get them the first base and that's all you really need to do from what i'm understanding uh, correct me if i'm wrong that is essentially the methodology of it is on base percentage is very good get on base that leads to runs, runs win the game. If you really want to get into the weeds about it, Moneyball is actually <laughs> ridiculous because the Moneyball method that they show in the movie is kind of a lie. A lot of the players that they pick up in the movie weren't really that 
incidental to the A's pennant run in the early 2000s because they already had one of the best pitching staffs around. They had Miguel Tejada and uh, Jermaine Dye in right field, and they had a bunch of pieces already that they kind of, you know, smooth over in the movie, but we're not here to talk about that, Andrew. Well, yeah, they went heavy on the uh, oh, the yeah. underdog type thing. They did, and the guys that they focused on in the movie were kind of just periphery guys in real yeah. life. That's not the point. The movie is different than real life, and it's if you're just focusing on the movie itself, I thought it worked amazingly. No, I, I really did. I enjoyed every dialogue scene. Brad Pitt was so good. Brad incredible in this. Brad Pitt is, this is the best version of Brad Pitt, mm-hmm. I think. Stoic, very handsome, very charismatic, playing kind of a dumb guy in the room. This is my Brad Pitt theory. He's the best kind of dumb, smart guy or smart, dumb guy. That you can have. That's so funny you're saying this because I was going to say, I think Brad Pitt is one of few leading men that can play that leading pretty boy, manly man type that can also pull off being smart. I buy that he's an intelligent individual in but he's this. Also in kind of dumb in this way of he knows that what Jonah Hill's character is talking about is kind of over his head. So he's kind of the dumbest guy in, in the conversation, but he's also smart enough to realize this guy is really smart. What I'm doing is not working, so we're going to roll mm-hmm. with this. And he is enough of a commanding presence as a leader to go, no, this is what we're doing. And you follow him. He leans into it so much so mm-hmm. that when Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, his, I guess he's he's the coach or is he a manager? Or the manager is the coach? The manager of a baseball team is the coach. Yeah. Art and Howell s- is the character Philip Seymour Hoffman plays. And he refuses to play the players that he's telling him to play, yes. so he literally just trades them away. Like, he doubles down on it and basically gives Phil Seymour Hoffman no choice but to play the guys that he's telling him to play. And the fact that he completely embraces this new method and sees talent. And that's the thing is that he might not be the guy who came up with the methodology, but he was able to recognize the talent in the methodology Mm -hmm. in the same way that a good leader will surround himself with, like you said, smart individuals. Like he sees Jonah Hill, turn down the trade in the Indians negotiation and he beelines it straight to him. And he says, who are you? And what did you tell him to make him turn down what he thought was a great trade for them? He recognized that there was obviously something he didn't know and that maybe that knowledge could help him. And I think that's something that Aaron Sorkin does very well and any really good writer, a lot of writers do this, but is being able to sum up his characters or the theme of the story in one story that one of the characters tells. For instance, Charlie Wilson's War, it's the story of the Zen master and the little boy that Hoffman tells Hanks on the balcony. In Moneyball, it's Jonah Hill telling Brad Pitt's character the story of uh, Jeremy Brown's home run hit. You know, when he's showing him the tape. In the newsroom, it's calling everybody who's watching the show stupid because Aaron Sorkin's the smartest person in the world. Naturally. According to Aaron Sorkin. Exactly. But that story with with Jeremy Brown, I mean, that perfectly encapsulates the conflict at the core of Billy Bean's character, who, because of essentially only one loss after a record-breaking 20-game winning streak that's never been achieved in baseball history, is essentially missing the forest for the trees because he's fixated on one loss and unable to see how he's effectively revolutionized the game of baseball forever against all odds, against all conventional wisdom. And he still feels as though he failed. He did kind of fail. He hasn't won a World Series. You can make the argument that the what Billy Bean did with Moneyball, with the Oakland A's, the Boston Red Sox, they do this at the end credits. They say the Boston Red Sox used the Moneyball method and won the World Series a few mm-hmm. years later. 
Boston Red Sox also got to pay for the most the most expensive players, the best guys. They took the being able to pay for the best guys and the Moneyball thing and combined it and won the World Series. You can make the argument that Billy Bean's method hasn't worked or the Moneyball thing hasn't worked. Now, obviously it does, and I'm playing devil's advocate because Moneyball and that way of thinking has permeated the game so much and it, it does work. Everybody knows it. That's just how you view the game now. But he never did win that World Series. He definitely failed at his want, which was to win the championship. But I think he succeeded in what he needed, which was to change the game of baseball. And that is what he told Jonah Hill. It was right after the 20 win streak. And he looks at Jonah Hill. He's like, what's the point? And he's like, the point to me is changing the entire game of baseball in the way that it's played because he works for a team that is broke. He romanticizes it. He says it's hard not to romanticize baseball. And I think it hurts him to think that it has now become a pay-to-play sport when it really shouldn't be about that. It should be about the sport. It should be about the game. And he succeeded in that. He succeeded in changing the thinking. Sure, the Red Sox, like you were saying, had the ability to pay for those great players, but that story really sums his character up perfectly. And it's right after he's telling him, you know, we lost. It also does the strange thing, too, where the climax of a sports movie isn't winning a championship because they don't. It's a 20 win win streak. Yeah. Yeah. What an odd. Yeah, the th- the become, third act. Yeah. The third act is them trying to break a record, not win a championship. What an odd mm-hmm. thing that they had to do it because they couldn't do anything else. But, but how strange. Not something that you see in most other serious baseball dramas. And that's why I or, think it or, makes or, it yeah. unconventional. I think more than anything, it is thumbing his nose at the naysayers is really what the win was more than them winning the championship. A lot like Whippet. Mm-hmm. Your picks are a l- very depressing, Andrew. Uh, you've been telling me to watch Moneyball for quite a while. so. <laughs> and the greatest game I've ever played is very inspirational. I love that movie. True. Very inspirational. But I, I mean, is that what makes it uncon- unconventional? I mean, Rocky, he doesn't win in the end, but. No, Rocky doesn't. We brought up Bring It On, too. Mm-hmm. Not a sports movie. Oh, you know what I forgot to bring up? Mm. Drumline. <laughs> Drumline. Drumline hits so many sports movie tropes True. and so many sports movie beats. Cliches. Yeah, I mean, it is. It's it's the male bring it on. Oh, it is. I don't think I've seen Drumline all the way through. I did. Oh, I wasn't yeah. on, uh, that, I used to watch wasn't it on that Nick Cannon train. Like well, I wasn't on the Nick Cannon train ever, really, but I really like Drumline so much so that in my senior year, I signed up for Drumline <laughs> and then realized I hated it and a week later went into drama and then did great in drama. <laughs> it does strike you as the male bring it on. Yeah, yeah. Bring it on too. Bring it on does the same thing that Rocky does. And that the Rancho Carne High School cheerleaders do not win in the end. Gabrielle Union's East Compton Clovers win. Or East Los Angeles, yeah. mm-hmm. whatever they are. The Clovers. They're the ones that win. I, I think I've only seen parts of bring it on now i think about really? it no bring it on was kind of like a cultural it was phenomenon. A phenomenon i think i've seen parts of it like on hbo and things like that when it would be on it's got an incredible rom-com moment where it's all done without dialogue too kirsten dunn's plays the main girl and the love interest is uh the brother of the girl that she hates in the beginning but they become friends and they're doing a little flirty scene where kirsten dunn's character is staying with them you know, like doing like a sleepover type thing. And they're doing this flirty thing in the bathroom mirror where they're both brushing their teeth and looking at each other and then looking away. But the only thing that I could remember about that scene, it's a very cute scene, is 
why when they're brushing their teeth are they not getting toothpaste all over their face? Because I can't brush my teeth without getting toothpaste everywhere. I'm so glad I'm not the only one. I hate on TV, and Christina's able to do this. She can brush her teeth without- into the bedroom while brushing her teeth. And I'm like dripping everywhere. I'm like, I don't know if I, yeah, no, I'm the same way. And I'm like messy as all hell. I'm so glad that it's not just me. I was like, there's something wrong with me. No. And that's why I was like, this, this is ridiculous. Bring it on. <laughs> There's no way they can be doing this without. Apparently there is. I know people that can brush their teeth without drooling all over themselves. I my know. hand is like soaking by the end of brushing my teeth. No, it, it blows my mind. I was like, this is the most unrealistic thing I've ever seen. Apparently it's not. If there's a scientific explanation to this and you know what it is, please just comment it below. I'm so curious why other people can do it and both of us can't. Brush your teeth without looking like you're bit by a raccoon. Yeah, exactly. So this is also something that that occurred to me when I was kind of compiling my list of films because I I kind of went down the path. I was like, okay, it's Step Up, Pitch Perfect, Stick It, Bring It On. Are those sports movies? I was like, yeah, I guess they hit the sports movie tropes. And there is kind of that subgenre of sports movie that is, I guess, competitive art. They have the sports movie template. Exactly. But it's a sports movie beat, you know. And I think that Whiplash, for all intents and purposes, is a sports movie. Mm -mm. No, no, I disagree. This is the one where it falls too far into a drama for it to hit the cliche sports movie. No, I agree with that. I wouldn't say it's a sports movie, which is why I didn't really like put it down because I would say that drumline, although it's also about drumming, hits more of a sports movie beats. But when you think of Whiplash, he's the athlete that is striving for greatness and it is competitive and he does have the moment where he kind of spirals. I, I think that Whiplash is Raging Bull. Fine. I will, I will give you that. But because it doesn't hit that easy template of a sports movie, even though we're saying something like Pitch Perfect has the sports movie template, and so it kind of fits into this weird category that we've mm-hmm. defined of unorthodox sports movies, Whiplash is too much of a drama that it doesn't count. It needs to fall into that category for me to be okay with this. I mean, Itani is a drama, but it's a sports movie. Yeah. Itani is a heavy drama. But yeah. I, I agree. And I'm not saying that, that Whiplash is a sports movie, but I think that Whiplash hits sports movie B even down to the coach jk simmons's character is the hard-ass coach he treats it like a sport in a sense like physically assaulting his players if you were to want to push it you probably could fit whiplash into the sports movie genre into the sports movie like template the genre yeah yeah like the unconventional sports movie template the type of you know we're striving for greatness i'm an underdog my coach is yeah the big game at the end is the big concert that he goes i understand what you're saying there's like varsity there's jv basically like he was on the jv team essentially and then got the big game gets called up for the big game to play for the coach that everyone has been wanting to play for but is completely terrified of it it feels a lot like it has the stock characters yeah exactly that's fine because i also have a movie called the king of kong which is a documentary about guys playing Mm. Donkey Mm -hmm. kong that also is basically the same thing yeah, sports. It's got the sports movie template, but it's about dudes playing Donkey Kong. So I can make the same argument for that. I totally think that counts. Actually, speaking of sports documentaries, friend of the show David Fish produced and edited a sports documentary called Suffer for Good that just came out earlier this week. It's about Seb Zudi, a diplomatic refugee and aging boxing coach who rediscovers his dream to fight in America after his Olympic dreams were cut short in 1984. Suffer for Good is on next week's watch list, so definitely check it out and join us next week as we discuss it. 
along with David Fincher's newest film, Mank, and Netflix's new original series, Selena. That about wraps up this week's episode, and as always, we'd love to hear from you. What are your favorite unconventional sports films and why? Did you agree or disagree with anything we discussed? As we've mentioned before, we are shooting to reach 1,000 subscribers on YouTube to become partners, so if you haven't done so already, please consider subscribing. If you have any ideas for a theme you'd like us to discuss, or a film, TV show, anything pop culture, let us know on YouTube, Instagram, or Twitter. You can find all those links on channel8andahalf.com. That's channel 8 and a half completely spelled out.com we have new episodes every thursday until next time my name is joe galino and i'm andrew hannah and this is channel eight and a half